Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, Paula and I would like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you are new to our podcast, the best ways to support us is to tell a family member or a friend. Leave a five-star review, and also consider becoming a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal writing stories just like this. Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight, we have a treat for you. A bit of a different format than we usually do, but we've done this before. I'm going to introduce you to Justin Glanville, who has a new podcast out where he explores a stunningly tragic mystery in Ohio, the Columbus murders of Mary Petrie and Bill Sprout. They were two university students who became victims in a home invasion that was so brutal and unsettling, it drew comparisons to the Manson family murders that happened just six months earlier. So, Justin, welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Thank you, Paula. I'm glad to be here. We are tickled to have you. You know, before we get too far into this, why don't you tell our listeners a little about yourself? Sure. So uh, I'm Justin Glanville, and I am a producer for IdeaStream Public Media, which is the PBS and NPR station in Northeast Ohio, so the Cleveland and Akron area. And typically, Paula, I do stories that are nothing like this (laughs) about crime and so on. I do really more community-based stories where I take deep dives into neighborhood life, try to, you know, lift up stories that people might not have heard about particular communities. So this is, in a lot of ways, really outside my wheelhouse, although I will say as I've gotten deeper into it, there's a lot of parallels with the kind of stuff I usually do in terms of, I ended up collaborating really closely with the two sisters involved in this case, which is something I love to do in my stories, collaborate really closely with non-journalists and non-producers. 
So anyway, so I usually do not do crime stories. This is my first ever, maybe my last. We'll see. I grew up in uh, Northeast Ohio, moved away for a long time. I went to college in Iowa, lived in New York City for a while, and then I came back uh, and really happy to be back in my hometown. Welcome back. Well, it would be a shame if this is your last true crime effort because your podcast is great. It's called Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, and it's already six episodes into a seven episode run. So folks, you can binge it right now, but it's so well done. And it's definitely, you picked a great topic. It's one of the more disturbing unsolved homicides in all of Ohio. And I know why you went out of the box to do this one, because you have a personal connection to this one. That's right, Paula. Well, first of all, thank you for those kind words. That means a lot to me. And yeah, it's really crazy how under the radar to me this case is and the general, I guess, imagination. It's a double homicide. The details of it, as you say, are just so grisly and disturbing. The Really, the only reason I know about it is because of my parents had a connection to it. So my mom was a student at Ohio State. I should mention this all happened in Columbus. Uh, my mom was a student at Ohio State in 1970, and one of her friends was a guy named Bill Sprout. Bill was actually a grad student at that time studying French, and his roommate was dating my mom's roommate. <laughs> so that's how they knew each other. And that roommate, Bill's roommate, was staying over with my mom the night that the murders happened. I'm sorry, I should say staying over at my mom's apartment with his girlfriend. My dad was also there visiting from Akron. And when the roommate, whose name is Tom, went back to his apartment the next day, he discovered Mary and Bill's bodies. The scene was so gruesome that he initially told reporters he thought he saw three bodies. And he, the first person he called was my dad. He called my dad. I don't know, I guess just like patriarchy back then, you know, like men calling each other back in 1970. Uh, my dad ran over to the scene. By the time he got there, the roommate had also called the police. The scene was cordoned off. My dad was taken in as a suspect because he showed up, you know, right after the discovery of the bodies. So, it's something that my parents would talk about occasionally as I got to be a little bit older growing up of just this awful double murder that had happened. They would talk a little bit about some of the disturbing details. The fact that a bowling ball was one of the weapons, the fact that wire hangers were, they, the term they used, I remember was wrapped around the bodies. Um, they were used to bind specifically Bill. So just a very like nightmarish and haunting thing that had happened to them in their youth that they talked about from time to time and knew had never been solved. And so I just started poking into it about three and a half or four years ago and found, yeah, never, never any real leads. And it just dropped under the radar super quickly. You know, a lot of, the true crime podcast episodes that I do, I use the term brutal because so many homicides are brutal, but never was that word more appropriate than in this case. That is not hyperbole. It was gruesome and brutal. And 
and our listeners will see exactly why in a little bit. But, you know, the connection and the fact that your parents even joined you on some of your research and your excursions really lends a unique perspective to this whole story. Um, but before we digress too much, let's go back to the very beginning. Set the stage for us. Who are Bill Sprout and Mary Petrie? So as I mentioned, Bill Sprout is a grad student in French at Ohio State University. He's originally from outside Philadelphia, and he is living with his roommate, Tom McGuigan, a childhood friend, also from outside Philadelphia. Mary is, a, is an undergrad student at the College of Mount St. Joseph in Cincinnati. It's a Catholic, at that time, all-girls school. It's now co-ed. And she and Bill had met his senior year at Xavier University. So that's where he had been an undergraduate student, also in Cincinnati. They really bonded over their love of French. So Mary was a French major. And Bill, of course, was also a French major and then went on to be pursuing his graduate degree in it. Mary planned to do the same. From what Mary's identical twin sister, Martha, has told me, they both really saw themselves becoming academics, you know, college professors or maybe translators. Uh, so very, very intellectual, both very intellectual people, both pretty, sh pretty shy in terms of what I've heard. You know, the reason that, that Bill and Mary weren't over hanging out with my parents and the roommate that night is because they just kind of like to be by themselves. You know, they were just a little bit more private and bookish. Uh, both came from very Catholic backgrounds, and I'm sure as we continue our talk, that'll come into play a little bit, too. We'll talk about that. But, yeah, they just loved loved all things French and, and both traveled back and forth between the States and, and France quite a bit. Now, if I remember right, I mean, you mentioned that she came from a, a Catholic fa family. They were, they were very devout, right? I mean, didn't she had a sister who was a nun and a brother on his way to becoming a priest and another brother who was a chaplain. They were, they were de devout, I think is the best word for it. You got it. it. Absolutely. It's it's hard to think of a family that I've encountered that has more kind of direct connections like that to the Catholic Church. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. One of the things found at the on Mary's person at the crime scene was a rosary. So she always had a rosary on her. Um, so yeah, it's both extremely Catholic and I think Bill a little bit less so than Mary, but a huge part of their backgrounds. Now we're going to go to February 27th of 1970. And um, Mary is coming up from Cincinnati to Columbus um, because that's where Bill is. He's got an apartment in Columbus. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on that day between the two of them? And one of the, one of the, the interviews I was most grateful to be able to line up was a woman who shared a ride with Mary to Columbus that day from Cincinnati. The ride and the visit really came together at the last minute, Paula, which is one of the mysterious things about this whole thing. Very few people knew, including Bill and Mary themselves, that they were going to be spending the weekend together up until the 
afternoon of Friday, February 27th, when Mary got a last minute ride from Cincinnati with three or four other girls from women from College of Mount St. Joseph who were heading north. And she and a woman named Terry Ryan Kinderbrader, who I interview in episode five, were dropped off in Grove City, which is a suburb outside of Columbus, at a Holiday Inn lobby where Terry's father was going to pick her up. So Terry lived in Columbus. And Mary told Terry that she was waiting for Bill to pick her up. Now, this is a this detail is a little bit strange because Mary was very adamant in Terry's memory that she was going to stay there and wait for Bill to pick her up. Terry's father apparently offered Mary a ride himself to, uh, to Ohio State. Mary turned it down. What ends up happening is that Terry and her father leave Mary alone in that hotel lobby, and Mary takes a cab to Bill's apartment. So was Bill never really planning to come pick her up, but she just didn't want Terry's father to drop her off for some reason? We, we don't know, and we probably never will know. But Mary is dropped off at Bill's apartment at about 6.30 p.m. Now, I should back up and say Tom McGuigan, that's Bill's roommate, tells police that he leaves the apartment at about 6 o'clock p.m. After having gotten a call from Mary at about 5.15 p.m. that she's on her way in a cab. So there's a window of about a half an hour between when Tom reportedly leaves the apartment and when Mary shows up at 6.30 p.m. The cab driver drops her off, sees her walk into the apartment building. It was a small four-unit house. Um, she walks in, and that's the last anyone sees of either of them. I'll pause right there. Um, so that's that's six thirty p.m. Mary walks into the building. Okay, so they're in Bill's apartment. They're looking forward to a nice evening together, and then something totally unexpected happens. And of course, there's nobody alive or in custody to tell us exactly what occurred in that apartment. But knowing what we know. Why don't you walk us through what police believe happens next? Absolutely. And I'll preface this, Paul, by saying, by giving a caveat, which is that what you're, the details you're going to hear next are from mostly from news accounts of what happened that night. Everything I've told you pretty much up to this point is either a, a, an eyewitness told me personally or I got it from the summary police report. What you're going to hear next are mostly details from that were reported in newspapers. And I bring that up all just because a retired cop that I talked to for this podcast told me that the police told the paper some things that were very odd and slash might have been intentional lies to potentially throw off suspects and so on. So take all of these kind of next details on the on the timeline with a grain of salt. But what reportedly happens next is that 
at seven. So again, Mary walks into the apartment at six thirty. That cab driver, by the way, is reportedly investigated. Shows receipts that you know he continued on his rounds for the rest of the evening, cleared of suspicion. At seven thirty p.m., Mary reportedly calls a female student at Ohio State, arranging to spend the night with that female student. You'll remember Mary's a devout Catholic. Uh, this becomes like a big point of like fulcrum of the investigation. Did Mary intend to spend the night there or not? Which sounds so, it's like, you know, it's in 2023. It's like, wow, was that really a thing that people you know, th thought about or cared about back then? And, and it, you know, one of the things I try to explain in the podcast is it really was, especially if you're a Catholic. But um, so she's, she calls this woman arranging to spend the night with her at 7.30 p.m., um, after that, at about eight o'clock PM, a newspaper boy is at the building collecting fees on his newspaper route. I guess this was common practice back then that newspaper boys would go to houses and apartment buildings to collect fees at night, uh, for their paper routes on the front porch, which I've been to the house, it's a very small front porch. So I could, you know, I could see this being a kind of like intimate and uncomfortable encounter. He sees a man that he doesn't recognize who says in a rough voice, get the hell out of here. And the newspaper boy does, he runs away. The next thing that's reported to happen is at about 10 o'clock, some other people who live in the building come home, go upstairs, Tom and Bill's apartment was on the second floor. They see the door ajar and hear some music playing inside on a radio. Um, but they don't investigate any further. They just continue on to their own apartment. Um, I should also say that no one heard anything. No one reported to the police that they heard anything happening in the apartment, which really stands out to me because, number one, this would have been a protracted homicide given all the horrible things that were done and um you know there's other people who live in this building and yet no one hears anything i guess it's a friday night people were out doing college things but it's still striking that no one hears anything and that this perpetrator i don't know like took the risk of no one coming home for that whole time it took for all this to happen I do remember there being comments about it being, you know, Friday night in a college town. A lot of people go home for the weekend. And true. it was it was a good possibility that if there was anybody left in that building, they probably were going to be out doing something in the evening and wouldn't yeah. be home until yeah. late. So he really did pick a good night and the proper time yeah. if he were going to play the odds on nobody being there, I think. You're right. And one theory that actually, again, Martha, Mary's twin sister has floated, is that potentially that man on the front porch may have been a lookout uh, to scare anyone away who happened to be coming home while the murder was happening, which I think is a very interesting theory. Uh, but at any rate, so the next, really the, the next thing that happens is more than 12 hours later, when Tom McGuigan comes back, this is from the, the police report. He comes back to the apartment at 12.25 p.m. on Saturday. So college kids sleep way in. Uh, and, and 
that's when he discovers the bodies. So the um, police come in and what they see, uh, you know, maybe we should just warn people that the details of what comes next are shocking, you know. Um, but why don't you tell us what they find? They are shocking. And it's, it's you know, the, just the level of overkill here is something that I think even people who do this for a living, who either investigate crimes or research crimes for a living, tell me is really uh, way outside what they typically see and, and highly disturbing even for them. So both Bill and Mary were bludgeoned and the suspected instrument in this case was a bowling ball. Now, it's a, it was a, I have a, there's a, there's a photograph of this bowling ball on our website, which is ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill. And I bring that up just to, because there's lots of photos on there, nothing graphic, but lots of photos and resources if people want to research the case more. Uh, it's a tester bowling ball. So it was one that has like multiple holes in it. And the guys used it as an umbrella holder. My mom actually remembers visiting the apartment and seeing umbrellas in this bowling ball and it was kind of this cute conversation piece um anyway they were bludgeoned reportedly with that bowling ball they were in separate rooms they were found in separate rooms thank you bill was found in a bathroom face down mary was found in a bedroom um partially unclothed um but both had been bludgeoned Bill was found, as I said, bound with wire hangers. Some accounts say that the, the hangers were twisted so tight that pliers must have been used to, to twist them that tightly. He was bound hand and foot. Um, and they were both strangled and stabbed in Mary's case 23 times to the back. In Bill's case, 16 times to the back. Um, one very odd detail about the stabbings is, is number one, and you know, I interview a coroner who, who reviews all the coroner's reports and autopsy reports and photos in this case. And number one, the stabbing appears to be what happened last in both cases. And the stab wounds are clustered very specifically below the right and left shoulder blades in both the case of Mary and Bill. Um, and in a way that, um, again, suggests that the stab wounds happened last because there's no sign of struggle or, again, not to get too graphic, like, you know, they're, they're not messy. They're very precisely inflicted, if that makes sense. So it's almost like, almost like yeah. a ritualistic. Um, so that, that is essentially what the police and Tom McGuigan found. And they're um, stabbed with a, what, a seven and a half inch butcher knife that was taken from their kitchen. Thank you. Yeah. And of- left at the crime scene. Correct. All of the all of the murder weapons appeared to have been found from within the apartment. So the the wire hangers, the bowling ball, the knife, and yes, all were left in the apartment. The only thing that Tom McGuigan told police was missing was a rug, a gold fringe rug that was later found 
in a delivery truck nearby, um, but yield that rug yielded no clues. It appears like it was used to, it had some blood on it, so maybe it was used to clean up. Some yeah, it was the, kind of a mystery as to what happened to that, but yeah. there was so much blood. I, I, you know, I don't know what taking that away from the scene would have done, but right, right. And did I did I remember that Mary didn't she also have a wire coat hanger twisted around her neck? You know, the the coroner and autopsy reports say that there is evidence that there may have been something like that around her neck at one point, but it wasn't there when she arrived at the morgue. She had instead a t-shirt, um, a, a man's t-shirt was what she arrived at the morgue with around her neck. I mean, they just seem like they were almost tortured before they were killed. It's, exactly. Exactly. I saw a, a mention, and, and there was no explanation what it meant, but that police had said it appeared that maybe some effort had been made to make William comfortable while he was trussed up in the bathroom. And I I didn't know if that meant, was he given a pillow or was he kept alive for a time while the killer was with Mary? I mean, did, did you ever figure out what that, that detail meant? has always stuck with me too, Paula. And I've never, I've never been able to clarify exactly what, what was meant by that. Yeah. It, I think I made the same assumption as you, perhaps a pillow, but, but I have never heard anyone state that. Now, uh, th there was also a question as to whether Mary had been raped. Early reports said yes. Later reports sounded like the coroner did not find conclusive evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. Were you able to clarify that? Yeah, they were really back and forth on that in the initial accounts. And I think part of that, Paula, is that sexual assault and rape were much more narrowly defined back then. I think it really, unless there was sort of traditional, like evidence of like traditional intercourse having happened, it seems like they didn't necessarily think of it as a rape. Um, what I have been able to determine is that the DNA evidence in this case, which I'm sure we'll get into more, comes primarily from semen found on the bedspread. So whether exactly what, where that came from or what the circumstances were of that, um, it seems pretty clear that something sexual was going on here. Um, also, the medical examiner who reviewed the coroner and, and autopsy reports for me said that they really didn't do a very thorough investigation um, looking for evidence of, of rape. And what she said, the, the medical examiner said, was that almost always when strangulation is involved in a, in a murder, it's a red flag of a sexually motivated crime. Now, you know, do we know for do we know for a fact that um or let's see does that always mean that necessarily when someone's strangled it's a sexual thing no but it's one more thing that points to 
likely sexual assault in this case. And she was nude from the waist down. So Correct. obviously, at the very least, it was his intent to, right. to molest her. Yeah. There was one other really odd um, piece of evidence, and I bring it up because it's leading to something else. But there was a large stuffed chair that was pushed up against a window in an apparent effort to close a 12-inch gap in the curtains. And I'm bringing that up because that neighborhood had been terrorized by a serial rapist. And one of the things that happened in several of the apartments where the rapist attacked his, his victim was that he had done something to make sure there, that they had privacy. One point, I think he threw a bedspread over a curtain. Another time, I think he had used a chair to close a gap in a window. What do you think about, you know, obviously the guy who killed Bill and Mary had some of the same MO, although obviously he escalated to murder in this case. What do you think about that? Yeah, it, you know, it, early on in the investigation, Paula, it really seems like they were really leaning heavily toward this being the Northside rapist was the term. I can't remember if you said that. That's what that's what this person was dubbed, this theoretical person who had committed rapes around the same area. It seems like the police were really leaning heavily toward that having been the person who did this to Bill and Mary because of, for example, that detail you mentioned. Also, there were no signs of forced entry in the apartment and no signs of struggle. And one of the things that the North Side rapist did was he would lie to get entry into people's apartments. He would say he had to use the phone. I think I saw another account that said he was posing as a door-to-door -door salesman. Um, so, that would that would also point toward a similar MO, right? Like maybe this guy said to Bill and or Mary he needed to use the phone, and that's how he got in. Also, the the police sketch that was developed of in connection with this case was based on accounts of women who had survived attacks by the North Side rapist. Um, if you go to, to the website, you can see that sketch. It's, it's a guy, it's a man with a pockmarked face. That was his most distinguishing characteristic. Um, so they really seemed like they were leaning heavily toward that theory at the time. Over the years, it, they seem to have gotten farther and farther away from that being what happened. There's, there's a, a really, in 2009, uh, Columbus police were saying to the media that they no longer believed it was the North Side rapist because there were certain things with his MO that just really did not match this case. Of course, the most obvious being that he killed very brutally Marion Bill. The North Side rapist did not typically kill uh, his victims. So it seems like over the years they have gotten away from that case, but it was a very compelling angle at the time. Do I think? Potentially, it could have been this person. Maybe, but I think I, too, have gotten away from thinking of that as the most likely possibility, just probably following along with the investigation. And again, just the brutality of it is so different from anything else we saw. 
I guess I kind of thought there was a reason if it was the North side serial rapist, there was a reason that this one escalated and that was the presence and possibly the unexpected presence of William in the apartment that maybe he saw, you know, maybe the killer saw Mary enter the apartment, carrying her suitcase, thinking she's coming home, went and did his thing, and there's Bill. And right. now he's got to change his plan. And so I, I kind of always thought I, I, I wouldn't dismiss it because that was the difference between that and the other cases and could have been why he reacted differently. I'm right there with you, and that's exactly, and I think that's still a legitimate theory of, of the crime. I will say, Paula, you know, I have had a chance to talk to the Columbus police a number of times for this podcast, most often through Martha, Mary's twin sister, who has really been pushing for the investigation to be renewed. And what they have told us is that Number one, they believe that Mary entered the murder scene in progress. We don't know exactly why they believe that, but that's what they told us. So they, they have told us that they believe Mary walked into Bill's attack and or murder already happening. Um, and they, they are, they have been leaning more toward this being a crime of passion, like someone who knew. Mary and Bill is what they've told us. Um, so well, I think part you, of my intro, yeah, there's a, a wrench I would throw into that. And that mm -hmm. is Mary left the taxi at about six 30 to enter the building. Yeah. But we know she called somebody from the apartment. She called the woman that she was going to go spend the night with. Uh, and I think roughly an hour after she was in the apartment. So she could not have initially walked in on a crime in progress because she had time to be in that apartment making a phone call. Now, Unless, she had like gone into the bathroom and then come out and seen Bill being attacked or something. But right. go ahead, unless. No. Again, great point. Uh, the only thing I would say is unless that was a plant by the police, we have never been able to get a clear answer. I, first of all, I've never found that person. I have tried <laughs> lots of ways to the find friend the that friend, she was supposed to stay the with? friend, right. Ah. Martha cannot think of anyone that Mary would have known at Ohio state that she would have known well enough to call and spend the night with. So Possibly oh, that was so interesting. Yeah, possibly that was one of the details the police dropped gave to the media that that were not true to throw off, you know. I'm trying to think of what would be the motivation. I don't know. That up, but I don't know. Unless they were trying to protect her reputation and make it clear to everybody, Mary was a good girl. She wasn't going to be spending the night there. I know. I mean, I, maybe it I was know. something like that. I Yeah. I want to get into uh your um interviews with the sisters and the police. Mm -hmm. But before we get too far away from it, you mentioned DNA. Yeah. Uh, there was semen on the bed. I believe yeah. there were also bloody foot uh, fingerprints in the apartment that Columbus police had initially 
missed, but right. the BCI went in and found. And when I hear DNA, you know, maybe I'm a little more hopeful than I should be. But today, in 2023, when I hear there's DNA evidence, I'm like, this case is over. Here comes forensic genealogy. Yeah. They're going to figure out who this guy is. Case closed. But it has been years since forensic genealogy was a possibility, and nobody's announced that it's been done or is being done. What do you know about that DNA evidence, and is anything being done with that? This is one of the main spines of the narrative, I would say, and the podcast as it goes on is is my attempts to get answers to those very questions alongside Martha and also Pat, who is Bill's sister, who still lives outside Philadelphia. Um, I don't want to spoil the final episode, which will, will not have been released by the time that this airs. Uh, the DNA... But I, but I can say a lot about the DNA still. The DNA has been collected and tested for a long time in this case. It was first submitted for potential matching and offender databases about 15 years ago um, and has never generated any hits. Um, why has it never been submitted for forensic genealogy? is a really good question. Uh, you know, one episode that, that that's already out now, episode five, we really, or no, 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 sorry. It's, it's the one, it will be out by the time this, this is released. Uh, the police uh, tell us that there are several steps they need to take before they're able to do that. I find out a lot more about what those regulations are and so on. Um, but it's still frustrating because you're right. This has been unsolved for 53 years. The people, the survivors in this case are not getting any younger. They're in their mid seventies. They want answers. And to jump through all these hoops that they've been jump bureaucratic hoops that they've been jumping through is frustrating because to me too. And again, I don't do this for a living, but if you just submitted the DNA to for forensic genealogy a few years ago, when I and the sisters first started inquiring about the case, it just seems like the chances would be very good that we'd be a lot further with this case than we already are. I will say by the end of the podcast, I think you'll have a lot more reason for hope <laughs> right. that, that we're going to finally get somewhere. Well, this should be airing on a Sunday. Your final episode is airing on Wednesday. Correct. Yeah. So we don't have to wait too long. Right. Folks, right. Hurry up, get in there, binge this series so that on Wednesday you're ready for the big finale. And you know what? If there's a crowdfunding campaign, I will donate. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we get Porchlight Project or James Redder involved, or you know, Paula, the, you're you're reading my mind. That's so the <laughs> episode that will just come out when this airs is all about that. In fact, Porchlight Project offered to fund forensic genealogy in this case, and the police turned them down. No, yeah, there is. What is the reason for that? that because they don't sense. need the help because they have their own funding. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, well, it's, you um, know, if they got their own funding, good for them. But then do it. Yeah, I, know, I know. I know. Well, you, you've mentioned the sisters, Martha Pat, and Pat. And, you know, I mean, when you can talk to family, you know, that always elevates a story. And more reason to solve this because the family is still alive. The friends are still alive. People who are invested in these people are still around and still deserving of the answers. Tell me, tell me about your experience with the sisters. You know, were they eager to talk to you? Did you have to charm them? You know, that, that was one of the very first things I did, Paula. When I, when I first started poking back into this case and thinking about doing something about it, I thought, you know, before I, before I even go down any further down this rabbit hole or think about doing you know, a deep dive, I need to make sure that the sisters would be on board because number one, I just w wanted their consent, I guess, or, or just like, I wanted them to tell me, yes, they wanted me to do this because as far as I knew, they just wanted to leave it in the past and not have it all dredged back up. And number two, I kind of, I think I kind of realized even back then, if we were going to get very far and really pushing the case along, it would need to be at the family's behest, right? Like a pesky reporter trying to get the police to do stuff is not, doesn't have anywhere near the same level of, uh, you know, just clout, I guess, as like the two sisters pressuring the police to solve the crime. So it turned out, I, I reached out to Martha first and she got back to me immediately and said, yes, I, I want to talk. Yes, I want resolution in this case still. She was at a place in her life where she had just recently retired. That's been one benefit of the case having been so cold for so long is the sisters have, have time to devote to this. They're done raising their children. They're done with their careers. So Pat too. Pat, I got in touch with through Martha and immediately um, wanted to talk to me. Now I did find out that they both did background checks on me. <laughs> After I contacted them. them, they were like, "Who is this guy? Is he really like a real? Is he real? Uh, does yeah. he do good things in life?" And I guess I passed that test. So good. Yeah. And Martha, is she? Do I remember right? Is she Mary's twin? Correct. Her identical Mary's twin, twin yeah. sister. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. So they, uh, so they helped, you know, grease the wheels a little bit with the police. I was going to ask you how receptive police were to your questions. I think I've gotten part of that answer, but didn't you, I, I think I remember in one of your episodes, you said you called the police and immediately they want to go talk to your parents. Yeah. What was that about? <laughs> I know. So it's like, sorry, mom and dad, you are not suspects. What? <laughs> Right, right, about? right, right. I mean, okay, so I one of the other first things I did was submit a public records request for anything that the police would share with me in this case. And that's when I got, I can't remember now if it was a phone call or an email. It must have been a phone call <laughs> from, two, the, from two Columbus police saying, Hi, we're in Cleveland and we have paper copies of the summary police reports. Can you meet up with us and we'll give them to you? Now, I'm not a crime reporter, as I said, but I thought, okay, that is really weird. What cops from another city 
call a reporter out of the blue saying, we've got documents we want to drop off to you in person. <laughs> like what? Just that, that doesn't happen. Well, it turned out that I, you know, I'm pretty sure the reason for that is because they, yeah, they wanted to re-interview my parents. And one of the reasons for that is that my dad is named in the summary police reports. Um, you know, these are pretty brief two page documents and my dad is like named in them. So I think these cops were just getting back into looking into this case. They see the last name Glanville. And then meanwhile, this guy Glanville is contacting them for information. So yeah, they really were like met up at a coffee shop and they're like, yeah, can you take us over to your parents' house right now? Like right this minute? I'm like, no, I'm not going to just like they show escape. up. Yeah, before they escape. <laughs> before they anyway, leave the uh, To answer your bigger question, I've been frustrated that they haven't been more open on this because I really think that we can and, and really already have done a lot to advance just the, you know, knowledge of this case, awareness of this case, and could do more if they, if they would just be more transparent. However, the important thing is that they do seem to be making progress, largely because of Martha and Pat um, kind of being the ones to push things along. So I try to keep, I do get frustrated <laughs> that they are more open but I when and I do get frustrated at the pace of things, just like you. But I guess I try to remember that at least progress is being made. You know, I you know, I cut I cut them detectives a lot of slack because if it's unsolved, it's still an open case. It's still active. There's still a lot they're going to hold close to their chest. Even now, there are detectives I get along with really well. And, yeah. and they show me a lot of things. But every once in a while, I'll ask a question and they'll shut it down. And then I have to, you know, realize, okay, that's their job. And the yeah. fact that they wanted to meet your parents, like, immediately – would be a hopeful thing to me. I would think yeah. these guys are on it. You know, yeah, they're yeah. ready to go. They're ready to grab any any loose end that's out there. But it is extremely frustrating that, you know, a case that has been unsolved for more than half a century and they're, you know, sometimes they act like it happened last week and they don't want to share this information with you. And yeah. it's like, but maybe we could help. You know, if we had right. some of this information to share, maybe it would open up, you know, some new avenues for you if you would let us, you know, make us a partner. Not in everything, obviously, you know, but right. be a little more forthcoming. So yeah. now you mentioned your podcast. Um, tell us again where people, I mean, your website. So tell us again where people can find that website with, you've got pictures, documents, and and people who have information to add can can you know contact you where is that again sure that's ideastream.org slash mary and bill got it and um gosh justin thank you so much for joining us you know we did an episode on this a couple of years ago i heard it i'm and yeah i heard it i remember that mm -hmm. you know, it's it's it, it stuck with me because i was shocked that I hadn't heard it before. I'm like, yeah. this case should be on a lot of people's minds. And you, you know, what we did in 30 minutes, 
you are extrapolating into a seven-part series with wonderfully rich details, interviews with loved ones. I mean, just it, it's a brand new story that way. So folks, uh, b- believe it or not, we have only brushed the surface of this case. Justin's podcast, remember, it's Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. Um, you can get it on your favorite podcast app. We'll link to it on our website as well. Justin, good luck. I cannot wait to hear the last one and any uh, any final nuggets you're gonna any final surprises you're gonna have for us. Well, Paula, thank you so much for for having me on the show. And you're right; it is mind boggling that the case you mentioned, James Runner. And just in closing, I'll I'll tell you a quick anecdote. When I first reached out to him, so James Runner, for folks who maybe don't know, is is like true crime. You know, Ohio's true crime uh, journalist extraordinaire. And when I reached out to him about this case, he had never heard of it and was shocked. So it's very, it is very strange to me that it fell so so under the radar for so long. Thank you for what you did to bring more attention to it and your show and for having me on to talk about it too, because Mary and Bill deserve answers. Well, thank you. And, and let's hope we get to update our listeners in the very near future with those answers. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.